Well, this morning we return again to 1 Timothy chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, you can begin to look for that chapter. Over the course of my life as a Christian, I have seen many people supposedly come to the Lord, have uh, a real excitement for Christ, get involved in ministry to one degree or another. And then when they begin to learn what the scriptures say and they learn about what Christ asks of them, when they have to start dealing with their sins, when they have to start working on their heart issues, when they have to sacrifice to follow Christ, when they are persecuted or chided by their unbelieving friends, when the pleasures of the world or the deceitfulness of riches present themselves, they fall away from the faith. They walk away from the one that they used to claim is their Lord and Savior. They have turned their back on the church. They have turned their back on Christ, on their Christian friends, on the faith they once claimed to believe and have plunged headlong into the world, into its lusts, into its pleasures and riches. And you may know someone like that. They have traded a brick of gold for a dirt clod. They have traded a drop of pleasure for a sea of wrath. And after having looked at Jesus and the world, they have chosen the world instead of Christ. They are like those disciples that Jesus described in John 6, who after he explained what the disciples must do, it said that they withdrew from him and were not walking with him any longer. They walked away. Well, in our study of 1 Timothy this morning, we come to a very serious and sobering passage of Scripture. A passage of Scripture which deals with a topic that all of us need to be very aware of and be on guard against, and that is the topic of apostasy. As we approach 1 Timothy chapter 4, and we look at the text in verses 1 through 5, we are given three dangers you must avoid as a Christian and constantly be on guard against. First, there is the danger of apostasy. Secondly, there is the danger of the doctrines of demons. And third, there is the danger of those who peddle the doctrines of demons. Last week we looked at the first part of the first verse in chapter 4, verse 1. And we noticed three things, three <clears throat> things that are explicitly related to apostasy in chapter 4, verse 1, where he writes, but the, ex the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times some will fall away from the faith. And that is as far as we got. What we learn from this is the certainty of apostasy because the Spirit explicitly says that it will happen. Secondly, we learn the time of apostasy in the last days. And third, we learn what apostasy is, falling away from the faith. We learn that apostasy is a term used to describe 
a person who has totally abandoned the faith has rejected what they once believed or at least professed to believe. They said they were Christians. They seem to embrace Christianity. But now they have turned their back. They have embraced something else, whether it be atheism or some sort of occult or cult or pseudo-Christian group. Whenever anyone rejects Christianity, by default, they always cling to the doctrines of demons. The apostate is like the seed sown among the rocky soil, which hears the word and receives it with joy. But then, as soon as persecution happens or trial, it falls away. And the reason apostasy is so serious, and the reason the Word of God warns us over and over again in many different texts about apostasy, is that the apostate is one who has become unredeemable. They, by falling into the doctrines of demons and turning their back on what they once understood and once claimed to know, they put themselves into a permanent, unredeemable state. And there is no other place that could be as worse as being a place where you were beyond redemption. The author of Hebrews in Hebrews 6.6 6 says that it is impossible to renew them to get to repentance. Later on in chapter 10, verse 26 and 27, he says, If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversary. Peter says the same thing in 2 Peter 2, verses 20 through 21. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. And he goes on to say that it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and to turn back. To go apostate. These verses and others tell us that there is a very dreadful picture for the apostate. The scariest verses in all the Bible are directed at apostates. All of us probably know someone or maybe even a group of people who have wandered away from the faith. And this brings us to the last half of 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 and verse 2, where we will look at the last two dangers to be avoided, which are the source of apostasy and the peddlers of demonic doctrine. So if you have your Bibles, look at 1 Timothy 4, 1, and I'll read verses 1 through 5, and you can follow along. Paul writes, but the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons, by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected 
if it is received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by the means of the word of God and prayer. Now here we come to the second thing we need to be on guard against, and that's demonic doctrines. Notice what the last part of verse 1 says. After he says, the Spirit explicitly says, in the latter times some will fall away from the faith, notice what he says there. Paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. We have already seen the certainty of, of apostasy. We've seen the, the time of apostasy. We've seen the description of apostasy. And now we come to the source of apostasy. Paul describes it as people paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. That is an interesting, interesting little verse. <clears throat> it is interesting to note that in this one verse, if you look there, you'll see that the Holy Spirit is contrasted with another kind of spirit, deceitful spirits. Just as the Holy Spirit is the one who is the spirit of truth and always tells us what is right, so there are evil spirits, demons, who always speak lies. And these deceitful spirits, these demons, are the source of apostasy. Apostasy happens when deceived but professing believers start paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons, like Eve who paid attention to the serpent. You remember what happened? She stood there, she listened to him, she thought about what he was saying. She then began to think in her heart that maybe what he was saying was true, and after some exposure, decided to follow after Satan, and she was deceived, she was led astray from the truth, and duped into trading paradise for a piece of fruit. Now the phrase paying attention to is not just talking about someone who maybe listens to error or maybe a casual exposure to error. We're all exposed to error. I mean, you can't leave here and not be exposed to error. Uh, everywhere you go, uh, signs and TV and the media and just things written in the newspaper are constantly promoting error. This is talking about something much more than that. When it says these people are paying attention to, it describes somebody who not only pays attention to as to be exposed to, but who agrees with, who, hold on, hold on, who holds on to, and who becomes devoted to a certain form of teaching. And that's what happens to these people. After receiving the truth, after professing to believe it, the apostate begins to pay close attention, holding on to, agreeing with, demonic lies. Now the word deceitful, which describes these spirits when he says paying attention to deceitful spirits, is an interesting Greek word called planos. It's the word we get planet from. The reason we call planets planets is because they are wandering bodies, aren't they? If you've ever done any astronomy, um, if you've ever gone out at nighttime and got away from the city where you can actually see the stars, and you put a, a telescope on one of the planets, uh, you know, maybe Saturn's a neat one to look at, and uh, you fix a high-powered telescope on Saturn, and you dial it in, and you focus it, as you're looking at it, it's moving across your field of vision. You can actually see it. And the reason is, is because Saturn's moving. Because we're moving. 
Because all planets are moving. They're wandering around in orbit in space. And that is a word that was used to explain those who are wander away or who are led astray or who are deceived. Their deception comes when demons introduce these lies and then they go into a heretical orbit. And that's where they stay. Deceived by these deceitful spirits. They are like those in Romans chapter 1 and 2 who exchange the truth of God for a lie. They have the truth and then they do the great exchange. And so what we need to learn from this is that all doctrinal error comes from demons. All doctrinal error is promoted by evil spirits, fallen angels, who have as their primary goal to confuse and deceive and to lead people astray and, if possible, to damn them by their lies. But think about this. How do you think this happens? I mean, how do people who are sitting in the church who think they're Christians, but who are really not, how do these people get exposed to doctrines of demons? Think about that. Obviously, the demons themselves don't materialize, reveal themselves, and set up a doctrines of demons display in the foyer. They aren't out there saying, please come here, we will give you doctrines of demons. They are much more subtle than that. And so these questions bring us to the third danger we need to avoid and be on guard against, and that is peddlers of demonic doctrines. Demonic doctrines come from peddlers of demonic doctrines. And notice what he says in verse 2. Look there. He says, By means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own consciences with a branding iron. Now, the phrase by means of tells us what? It tells us that this is how the deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons get introduced into the church and lead those who think they're Christians but are not into apostasy and cause them to bail from the fellowship of the believers. Now, there are some fascinating words here, several words called Hapax legamina, only one time do they appear in the New Testament. This word here is interesting where he says that by means of the hypocrisy of liars. Now the word hypocrisy here is hypocrisis, the word we get hypocrisy from. And it is a word used in New Testament Greek to describe an actor, a play actor. And you know, here we are in the entertainment capital of the world, and we know what an actor is. If not, just talk to half the people in the foyer after church. They're, they either are or are trying to be. Now, an actor is someone who pretends to be someone they're not. They are someone who take on a persona, somebody who takes on the role of somebody that they're not. Now, of course, an actor would... Not do it to deceive you. He does it for entertainment purposes. But here, these people are acting out something else. They're acting out the part of those who purvey the truth. 
who supposedly are speaking what's right, who supposedly are teachers of truth. But in reality, they are not. They are hypocrites in regards to the truth. Jesus used this term frequently of the religious leaders of Israel who pretended to be righteous, who pretended to be pious, who pretended to love God. And all you need to do is go to texts like Matthew 23, where seven times in just that one chapter alone, he says, you are hypocrites. Seven times. Now, of course, he didn't take Dale Carnegie's course on how to win friends and influence people, but he spoke the truth. They were hypocrites, and they were to be exposed, and he exposed them in public before a large crowd. The other interesting word here is used of, is translated liars. And this is really fascinating. This is a compound of two words, pseudo, which means false, and logos, which means word or to speak or speech. It literally means false speakers or lie speakers. And when you put both of these together, he is really saying that by means of hypocritical lie speakers, they are led astray. But he also goes on to explain why these people become hypocritical lie speakers. And look at what he says at the end of verse 2. They are seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. That doesn't sound good, does it? I mean, you can just see it, can't you? Some guy's got his conscience, pops it out of his head, puts it down on the ironing board, and runs over it with the iron until it is seared. What's interesting is this word is kasteriadzo, the word we get carterize from. You know, in the medical profession, when you cut into somebody and they have little veins or arteries that are bleeding, you, they have these little um, devices that kind of look like a pencil with a cord on them, and they have the little iron on the end, basically, and they just dab things, and it just sears those arteries shut. So they quit bleeding. They cease to function. They no longer flow blood. And in a similar way, these... False teachers have the truth told them, but then they begin to receive error, and when their conscience goes off, they ignore it. They sear, carterize, burn their conscience, so that their consciences become scarred over. And even though their consciences may be trying to warn them, they never feel it. They don't hear their consciences anymore because they are seared as with a branding iron. God gave us our consciences to act as little eternal smoke detectors. Just as you have a smoke detector in your house and you, know, you burn the toast, what happens? The thing goes off. And so a lot of people, if they have a smoke detector by their, their uh, kitchen, you know, it's hanging down with the battery out of it. It's disabled. Because how many times do you want to put up with that thing going on? Especially early in the morning, you know, you're having your first cup of coffee and making some toast and the thing goes off and it's just, you just want to hit it with a hammer. 
And that is what happens with these people. Because the detector goes off and warns them, error, there's sin here. They don't want to hear it, and so they disable it. They are seared over. They crush their smoke detector. This tells us why the false teachers become false teachers. They ignore their conscience. When they heard the word of God preached, they were convicted. But instead of repenting and turning from their sin, they ignored the preaching of the word. Over and over again. Until pretty soon, they are bulletproof to truth. But where do these false People come from, they come from the church. They are like Hymenaeus and Alexander. Do you remember those people we talked about at the very end of chapter 1? Do you remember what happened? You remember how Hymenaeus and Alexander shipwrecked their faith? The text says they rejected their what? Conscience and suffered shipwreck in regards to the faith. This tells us, how this happens. You reject your conscience, you shipwreck your faith. When a person starts listening to their conscience, Satan has a feast. He is able to come in and just introduce all sorts of error. And then Paul says that error begins to spread like gangrene in the church. A disease back then, which if you had gangrene, it was pretty much over. I mean, they might try to cut your leg off, but they had no antibiotics. It would spread quickly and usually was fatal. But where do these false teachers come from? We know that they come eventually inside the church, but let's look at a text in Acts 20, verses 17 through 30. Turn there, Acts 20. This is Paul. He's at Miletus. He has called for the elders to come and visit him there as he's passing through, and he wants to give them some final instruction. And Paul, again, is speaking to the elders who are at the church that Timothy is now pastoring in 1 Timothy. Timothy is pastoring the church at Ephesus, and this was a few years before. And notice what he says. Look at verse 28. He says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, speaking to the elders, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. He says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Now notice, where do the purveyors of demonic doctrines come from? He says, one, savage wolves come in among you from outside the church, not sparing the flock. Like wolves that are on a, the hunt, they come into a pack of sheep and they begin to devour sheep from the outside in. He also says, which is even more scary, that from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. And this is the point we want to look at very carefully. We must not forget that unbelievers are of their father, the devil. All of them. Even church-going unbelievers. So often we kind of think that People who are of their father, the devil, are just extra wicked people. 
The Bible has only two classes of people. You are either of God or of Satan. You are either for God or against God. There is no middle ground. Do you remember what Jesus said when he was talking to the religious leaders of his day? In John chapter 8, verse 44, he is confronting the religious leaders who, of course, wanted to kill him. He said this to them. Now, as I read John 8, 44, I want you to notice and just listen and to see how their actions matched up with who their father was. Jesus said to them in John 8, 44, You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now Jesus, just in this one verse, gives us four important truths. Unbelievers are children of the devil. Unbelievers want to do the desires of their father, the devil. Unbelievers want to murder like their father, the devil. And unbelievers want to speak lies like their father, the devil. All unbelievers are Satan's children. They want to do the desires of their father. They want to deceive. They want to play the actor. They want to make people think they are something they are not. Satan is the deceiver and his children are unbelievers and both being deceived and deceiving others. Paul in 2 Timothy 3.13, as he is describing the last days, says this. Listen to this. But evil men and imposters will... Proceed from bad to worse, deceived and deceiving. He says they are doughtily deceiving, but they themselves are being deceived. So even though they may be, quote, sincere, as much as an unbeliever can be sincere, they are sincerely duped. And they are sincerely spreading lies, deceiving others. Now, they do this because they are the walking dead. Because they are spiritually dead. They have no spiritual life in them. They don't have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them, and so they cannot even understand the things of God. For the, the things of God, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, are spiritually appraised, and because they don't have the Spirit, they cannot understand them. Jesus, in Matthew 8.22, when speaking to a man who wanted to follow him, but who wanted to first wait until his father died. You remember that? Let me go first bury my father. Well, his father wasn't dead yet. He was saying, listen, my father's almost dead, and I want to be there when they divide up the inheritance. And Jesus said this, let the dead bury their own dead. Now, that is an interesting statement, isn't it? How do dead people bury dead people? What Jesus is talking about is let those who are spiritually dead bury their own physical dead, and you, you follow me. Now, we need to remember that Satan leads people by a three-cord leash, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. He's trying to lead us 
into error and he uses those things as bait. Paul described it in 2 Timothy 2.26 as being held captive by Satan to do his will. Now turn over to Ephesians. I want to show you how crystal clear the scriptures are in this issue. Ephesians chapter 2. This is the section where Paul is talking about the great salvation that we have in Christ and how we got that way. And in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, he describes the state of every unbeliever. And notice what he says. He says, And you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you formerly walked. Now, does that sound strange to you? Walking dead men? Zombies? You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you formerly walked. How did you walk? According to the course of this world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, according to the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, of the spirit that is now working, notice, in the sons of disobedience. Who's working in the sons of disobedience? Satan is. He is their master. They are walking according to his ways and he's working in them and through them. Look at verse 3. Among them we all too, or we too, all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Notice how all unbelievers are deceived. They're walking dead men. And they're walking according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in them, the sons of disobedience. So deceitful spirits peddle their demonic doctrines through false teachers. So even though a man may speak lies and be the purveyor of lies, the source is demonic. And this is critical to understand. Professing believers are held captive by Satan to do his will. He is working in the sons of disobedience. Now what we learn from this text is this. The danger you must guard yourself against is apostasy. The source of apostasy is deceitful spirits and demons who are working to peddle their demonic lies. And they work through unbelievers. Unbelievers who are hypocritical lie speakers whose consciences are seared as with a branding iron. They are found in every church and they lead professing believers who are not really believers but who think they are Christians into apostasy, into a permanent state of damnation. Now, that is scary. That is scary. And I want to address, so what can you do to guard yourself against apostasy? And we're going to look at this even more next week. First, you need to remember that all apostates start out as regular church attenders. Think about that. Every single apostate begins in the pew. 
professing to believe the truth, hearing the truth, saying they, can, they cling to the truth. They come to church, they hear the word of God preach. They say they believe it, but in their hearts they have never really repented. They have never really given their life to Christ. The fact is they love their sins more than God. They're into Christianity for what they can get out of it. So people will like them. So they will be liked among their religious peers. So they will be liked among their parents or whatever. And they are tares among the wheat and show themselves to be tares among the wheat because eventually they remove themselves from the wheat field. They depart. Secondly, you must understand that the scriptures command us to examine ourselves. Now, this is really something that um, I find interesting. Uh, several people have shown concern recently saying, you know, well, Jack, you know, are we supposed to always be examining ourselves? I mean, how come you're always telling us to examine ourselves? Because you must examine yourself. You have to. Now, listen, I'm not telling you that. This is how you guard yourself from apostasy. You examine yourself. And I'd like to just look at this a little bit more. You find people that do not like to examine themselves. And why is that? Because when they look inside, when they look at their heart, when they look at their life, what do they see? They see rebellion. They see unrepentance. They see disobedience. And yet they want to think that they are Christians even though their life is in a constant state of rebellion. So when you crawl out, you need to examine yourselves. They look at their heart and then they get angry at you. Who are you to tell me what I must do? Thomas Watson, speaking of this, said, quote, The sin which a man does not love to have reproved is his darling sin. Herod could not endure having his incest spoken against. If the prophet meddles with that sin, it shall cost him his head. Men cannot be, can be content to have other sins declaimed against, but if the minister puts his finger on the sore and touches this sin, their hearts begin to burn in malice against him. End quote. And that is exactly true. True believers, those who love God, will obey God's commandment and will regularly examine themselves. I just want to put this issue to rest so that we know what the scriptures say. Listen to what the scriptures say. Psalm 26.2, and I, this is just a, just a fraction of the text we could look at. The psalmist writes, Examine me, O Lord, and try me. Test my mind and my heart. Why? To see if there's any sin there. He cries out to God. I've, I've searched my heart. I've looked at my own heart. I can't find anything, but you examine me because you see everything. Jeremiah in Lamentations 3.40 says, Let us examine and probe our ways and let us return to the Lord or repent and turn back to God. In 1 Corinthians 11.28, in the context of the Lord's Supper, Paul says, But a man must examine himself. Present active imperative. Always be in the state of examining yourself. 2 Corinthians 13.5 the Word of God commands us, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, 
unless you fail the test. Again, present, active, imperative. Always be regularly examining yourself. Paul speaking to the Galatians about their walks with the Lord in Galatians 6.4. But each one must examine his own work. Present active imperative. Always be examining your own work. The author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 3.12, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil unbelieving heart and falling away from the living God. Now let me ask you this. How do you look in you to see if your heart is unbelieving? There's only one way. And that is to examine it before God and to ask God to examine it for you. You see, salvation is not merely claiming to be something. Salvation is not merely a, a profession of faith. It is that. But it is much more. It is a divine act whereby God enters into a person's life, brings them to repentance, and there is a divine change. There is a transformation. And the person is radically different from what they were before. Not only externally, but especially internally. Their external acts come from their internal Eternal transformation, a heart change. That is why salvation is called regeneration. And if there is no change, if there is no transformation, if you are not a new creature, if your passions, your motives, your worldview, your desires are not changed, you have not been saved. Now, I think some people think that that's just some sort of radical concept, that salvation somehow does not need to bring a life transformation that that you can teach that um, you can be a Christian and just constantly live in rebellion against God. I mean, what's the deal? Now, the scriptures don't teach that you instantly become perfect or that Christians never sin, but they do teach that there is radical transformation and that you will always be, be transforming into the image of Christ. Because God begins to work in you, and he who began that work will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. This is normal Christianity. Normal Christianity is to be radically changed from the inside, which results in radical external behavior. And I have talked to many people who are confused on this issue. They think you can be a Christian, they think you can live in constant rebellion, and still be right with God. Not a chance. The scriptures don't even hint against such a thing. And so I want to just look at some scriptures with you this morning. And we're going to start in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. And the reason we want to look at this so carefully is that the apostate is one who comes from church. From people who think they're saved. Who come to church who are involved in the ministry and then depart, having been deceived by deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Look at Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. 
This is in the Sermon on the Mount. He has already said in verse 15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. We talked about that last week. Notice how here is, as soon as you have people who are in the church who profess to know Christ but who don't know Christ, then what else do you have? False prophets. Isn't that interesting? And look at verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but what? He who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. That's the person who will enter. Now, is Jesus saying you're saved by works here? Absolutely not. The scriptures teach over and over you're saved by grace through faith. And so why is he saying that these people who do the will of the Father are the ones who will enter, but these people who say, Lord, Lord, have we not? Jesus says, I don't even know you. It's because true salvation happens from within and always causes life transformation. It produces obedience. Look down where he says in verse 24 as he talks about the two houses built on the two different foundations. Notice why the house on the rock stands. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and what acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house upon the rock. He not only hears the word of God, but he what? He acts on it. Turn over to John chapter 3. And we're just going to do, again, just a minor survey of this, but I want you to see how this is. This is right after the section where Jesus has spoken to Nicodemus. And in John 3.36... John the Baptist says this, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. Well, everybody wants to go for eternal life. They say, I believe in the Son, I have eternal life, but, there's a contrast there, He who does not obey the Son will not see life, but what? The wrath of God abides on him. Now, this is right after, you know, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. What is the world is going on here? Why does he say, he who believes has eternal life? Yes, salvation is by faith alone. That's true. But if he doesn't obey, he he shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. What is that? I'll tell you what that is. That is the absolute necessity of change that always happens in salvation. You are always transformed when you are saved. I mean, salvation is regeneration, being made into a new creature. Turn over to Romans chapter 6. I just want to show you from a lot of different authors so you know that this is not some sort of freak teaching plucked out of some verse out of context. Look at Romans chapter 6. And notice what Paul says here. Look in verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? May it never be. That is the strongest adversative, the strongest antithetical statement you can make in the Greek. May it never be. Notice the question here. How shall we who have died to sin still live in it? And the implied answer is what? We can't. Or do you not know 
that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death so that Christ just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. That's what happens when you're saved. You begin to walk in newness of life. Look at verse 14. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Look at verse 17. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of of righteousness. That's pretty clear. Look over at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And the Corinthians, you know, they were involved in every sort of deviant and aberrant behavior that you could imagine. And this is what Paul says right before he addresses the whole topic of immorality. Look at verse 9. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That is about as crystal clear as you can make it. I've had people tell me, well, you know, I've been living in this certain sin, and they name one of these sins right here for six years, but I know I'm saved. Well, I know something different. I know that the Word of God says here you're not. And then notice what he says in verse 11. After he lists all these sins which are characteristic of those who will not inherit the kingdom of God, he says, such what were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of God. He's not saying here that a Christian can't fall into any of these sins. But anybody who is characterized by these sins, who lives in these sins day in, day out, who will not turn from them, who will not repent from them, they are not Christians. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 5. And he says, as you noticed, do not be deceived. Deceived into thinking what? Deceived into thinking that you can live in those sins and what? Be a Christian. And if you look at Ephesians chapter 5, verses 5 and 6, notice what he says there. For this you know with certainty, that is, you know this just as plain as day, everybody knows this, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance 
and the kingdom of Christ and God. Notice verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words. You could insert in there doctrines of demons. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Listen to Hebrews 5, 9. And having, speaking of Christ, and having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. Turn over to 1 John, and we'll end in 1 John. Hopefully this is clear. 1 John chapter 2, verse 4. 1 John 2, verse 4, look at what the text says. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Turn over to chapter 3. Look at verse 3. After he says that we are children of God, he begins to explain in verse 3 that the hope of the second coming is one of the motivating factors which purifies a Christian, motivates them to obey God. And notice what he says in verse 3. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. And everyone who practices sin, now this is the key term. He's already said in chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, that if you are, say you're a believer, and you say you don't have any sin, you are a liar. He's not saying that Christians never sin. The operative term here is practices, who lives in continual sin. The one who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins or practices sins, and no one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, make sure, what? No one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning and the Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sins. He says it again just to make sure because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin or practice sin because he is born of God. And then just in case somebody still might not understand, he says this in verse 10, By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. We all need to bow to this fact. Salvation transforms a person's life. And if a person is living in rebellion against God, their assurance of salvation is nil. Sure, there is the rare exception, the rare exception of somebody like David who falls into adultery and murder, and then, after a time, 
comes back to repentance. Sure, there's people who have backslide. Sure, there's people who sin. All Christians sin. But the one who sins and lives in sins and does not want to repent of their sin, but hides their sin, the scriptures speak clearly to that sort of person. Do not be deceived into thinking that someone who practices unrighteousness is of God because God has spoken over and over again. Don't be like Judas who was with Christ for three years, heard Christ preach, heard Him teach, saw Him do miracles, was even given power to do miracles, walked around and followed Him all over Palestine and then... For 30 pieces of silver, denied the Lord and bought himself nothing more than a hangman's noose, which he hanged himself. Judas went apostate and was a trophy of Satan, born out of the 12 apostles, those hand-picked people. And so don't think that just because people come to church, just because they're in this sanctuary, that somehow they're all saved because they say they are. Only God can know for certain when a person has gone beyond the point of no return. But the issue is not to wait until they depart and wait until they leave the church and wait until they go astray and then wonder what happens The issue is right now, the people who are here, the people who are in the church, who are sitting in the pew, to look at their heart, to examine their heart. If your life is bearing the fruit of unbelief, if your heart is not right with God, if your life proves you're not right with God, come to the Savior. That's all. Forsake your sins. Take Isaiah's advice. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him turn to the Lord and he will abundantly pardon. But you can't drag your sin into the presence of God. It won't fit into the Holy of Holies. You can't take your sin and boldly approach the throne of grace. It won't fit through the door. And that is why the scriptures call us to repent of our sins, to guard our hearts. And there is nothing more distressing to me than to think that someone could come to church week after week, could hear the gospel preached, could hear the word of God preached over and over again, that Christ died for your sins, that he paid the penalty that you should have paid. That he offers the free gift of salvation through those who will trust him and believe in him. For eternal life. To have that offer made over and over again and to say, well, I want the heaven part. I'm willing to come to church. I'm willing to pretend to be a Christian, but you can't have my heart. That is to not be a Christian. That is to be a terror among the wheat. It is to be a candidate for apostasy. So as we leave here today, I would encourage each and every one of us to always be examining our heart, to be on guard against apostasy, to be on guard against the doctrines of demons and deceitful spirits, and to be on guard against those who peddle them. And next week when we come back, we're going to look at what you do when you encounter these doctrines of demons. 
What do you do when you find somebody who is peddling them? I mean, what should our response be? Should we invite them into our house, sit down with them, have coffee with them? What do we do? Do we just ignore them and hope they go away? Do we listen to their whole argument thoroughly over and over again just to make sure it's wrong? What do we do? Next week we're going to find out about that. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning and we do want to examine our hearts. We want to obey your word. And Father, we not only want to examine our own hearts, but we want you to examine our hearts. We want you to probe our hearts. We know that all things are open and laid bare before your eyes. And you are the one with whom we have to do. Father, if there are people here who look in their life and know they aren't following you, who, who have clung to their sins while professing to know you, who have really been deceived into thinking that they can be a Christian and yet never repent and turn from their wicked way. Father, may you bring them to repentance. May you have them cry out to Christ, reach out to the Savior. We know, he says, come to me all you are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We know that we can boldly approach the throne of grace to find help in a time of need, but we cannot bring our sins. They must be left and turned from and washed in your blood. So, Father, may we come before you. May we come before you with honest and sincere hearts. May we keep our consciences sprinkled clean. And, Father, we just ask that you would continue to do a work at Calvary Bible Church as people come to know you, as people search their hearts, as people realize that they are living a lie. Father, help of all of us to be on guard against apostasy, against doctrines of demons and those who peddle them, because we know that's your will. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.